Today's reading is Luke 12, verse 35 through 59, and it is found in page 871 in the church Bibles, if you're in those. It says this, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom, whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watcher in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set them over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And in an hour, he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would, and with that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Hope you're all doing well. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Chad. I'm one of the pastors here. If you call this place your church home and your church family, uh, welcome to you as well. Praise God, your sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. We're continuing our sermon series through Luke, as you heard just read, so uh, join me in a word of prayer. Father, we do declare how great you are when we think that your son, not sparing, sent him to die. We scarce can take it in. 
Lord. We, we just can't believe that Christ bore our burden on the cross. He paid for our sin. He bore your wrath. And you are worthy of eternal song and eternal praise and for we as your people to, to live for you, Father, to be faithful and wise stewards, to live for your glory and not for our own. I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in our worship this morning through song and fellowship and prayer and now through the preaching and the receiving of your word. I pray that you would give us a fresh glimpse of your love for us in Christ and the sure promise that Christ will come back someday and bring us home. And we long for that day, but we know until then that you have things for us to do while we're here. And so pray that you would glorify your name through us and through the ways that we live for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with a question for you all that I'm actually looking for an answer. I'm going to give you a hint, too, and some of you younger ones in here, this is more for you guys than the adults, okay? So besides Duck Duck Goose, what is the other quintessential American childhood game? Bastion? Musical chairs, good try. Good try. You're going to smack your head. Olsen. Hide and seek, that's my boy, hide and seek. We all played hide and seek, right? I've actually, I took a 25-year break from hide and seek. I played as a kid, and now I'm a dad of a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. And I play hide and seek all the time, like once a week I'm playing hide and seek. And, and what does the person who's it say when the round is starting? I heard it. After they count, they say, ready or not. Here I come, ready or not, here I come. I'm going to push the illustration a little bit further. Sometimes when you're the hider, and maybe like the two-year-old or the four-year-old is the seeker, and, and you, as a 36-year-old man, are a really good hider, and the two-year-old is not a very good seeker, what happens? You get kind of bored, you get kind of anxious, you start making noises, like really loud noises, sometimes you come out of your hiding place, you stop obeying the rules of the game because you've become kind of anxious and bored. Take a, nap. Take a nap. There you go. You fall asleep in your hiding place, especially when you hide on the bed under the covers. But here's, here's the connection. I'll say more about it, but here's the main connection I want you guys to take away from that illustration. One of the core tenets of Christianity is Christ's return. It's as if Christ is, has said in his word, ready or not, here I come. I'm coming back. And while you're hiding, don't get antsy and anxious, keep obeying. One commentator says it like this, there are 260 chapters in the New Testament, and Christ's return is mentioned no less than 318 times in those chapters. Statistically, one verse in 25 mentions the Lord's return. The only books that don't mention the second advent, the second coming, are Galatians, which is focused on refuting the Judaizers and the tiny letters of 2nd and 3rd John. I didn't know that. I thought that was amazing. And I'm not saying that we are playing a game of hide and seek with God. That wasn't the point of the opening question. The point is Jesus is coming back. He's coming back, ready or not, and therefore we, his servants, should be ready. And anyone who would be his servant must be ready. 
I wonder how many of us actually live ready for Jesus' return. Do we really live? Are we going to live today after we leave here as if Jesus could come back this afternoon? Is there an area of your life where you know God's will, but you're not obeying it? Maybe you're not confessing your sin, respecting or loving your spouse. Maybe you're cutting corners at work. Or maybe like the hider in hide and seek, you're bored and weary. You're, you're discouraged about life and obedience to God and what he's called you to and this stewardship that he's given you. I hope and I pray not, but even if you are, there's hope for you this morning. Remember verse 34 that we ended with last week, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Through the gospel, God has given us a new heart, a heart that enables us to treasure him, to to store our treasure there, our heart to be there with him and to long for his return. It hit me like a ton of bricks yesterday. It's kind of obscure, but you remember the story of Jacob when he meets Rachel? He's like, wow. I want to marry you. So he goes and meets her dad, Laban, and says, what do I need to do? And Laban says, you got to work seven years for my daughter. And Moses, the author, says of Jacob, they seemed to him like a few days because of the love he had for her. Turns out he didn't get her for 14 years, but I'm sure that 14 years still felt like a few days because of the love that he had for her. And how much more for us who have new hearts, can we wait and can it feel like a few days as we wait for King Jesus to come back and to take us home? So let me remind you some context before we dive in. In the previous weeks, we've heard and seen that Jesus is speaking about how what a person does with him differentiates people. There, there are two kinds of people we've seen. There are two kinds of holiness. There's the inward holiness and outward holiness. There's two kinds of fears Fear of God or fear of man. In the next few weeks after this passage, we're going to see there are two kinds of responses. You can be repentant or unrepentant. There will be those who bear fruit and those who don't bear fruit. Those who enter through the narrow door and those who don't enter through the narrow door. Jesus Christ brings peace between God and between those who believe in him as the Messiah. But he's also divided world history and he's divided mankind. I know most of you know this. Maybe some of the young ones don't. What year is it? 2023. What does that mean? Jesus lived 2,023 years ago. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has split time in two. We call it B.C. and A.D. But not just time. He, He has split people. He split humanity. Those who are his people, God's people, and those who aren't God's people. What I want you guys to see this morning is this. Because of Jesus' work on the cross and because of his imminent coming, we can be ready servants who live faithfully and wisely. And I've divided the passage into the four paragraphs that we see in the ESV translation. First, we're going to see ready servants, verses 35 through 48, and then we'll see Divided servants, 49 through 53. Unwise servants, 54 through 56. And then settled servants, 57 through 59. So let's first look at these ready servants in verses 35 through 48, that first paragraph. Jesus starts the passage by saying, basically, be ready for my return. Verse 35, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. 
Staying dressed for action literally in the Greek, it says, gird up your loins or let your loins stay girded. In ancient times, they wore long tunics. So to gird your loins meant to, to tie up your tunic around your waist so you could walk fast or so you could run. This was reminiscent of God's command to Israel on the first Passover in the Exodus. On that night of Passover, they were to eat their meal with their loins girded to be ready for a quick escape out of Egypt. And the command there is in the perfect imperative, which just means to stay constantly ready to act. Gird your loins and then master lock it. Keep them girded for the rest of your life. When you're in Christ, you're a new creation. You put on Christ, you get new clothing. You get rid of the the tunic and you put on your track speed suit. You're ready to walk fast or to run at any time. And then he says to, to keep your lamps burning. Burning lamps meant just that. Keep the lamps on. Don't go to bed. Don't go to sleep. Stay in the light. What do we need light for? To be able to see. We can't see very well in the dark. So these two images combined, one commentator says, it portrays the idea of expectant watchfulness. Then Jesus illustrates the necessity to be ready to live in this expectant watchfulness with a couple related parables. The first is in verses 36 through 38, where Jesus tells them to be like men, to be like servants who are waiting for their master to come back home from a wedding feast. In ancient times, a wedding feast could last, what I read, three to seven days. And in my research, I couldn't find why a wedding feast would end. So I'm just guessing, did they run out of food? Did they run out of wine? Were they partied out? Or did the host just say, okay, like, party's over, go home? I don't know. So the guests may not have known either when, when the wedding feast would end, let alone the servants of those guests. Therefore, that's why they had to stay ready. They needed to be waiting to open the door immediately when the master arrived. And Jesus says that for those servants who are ready, who do open the door immediately when the master comes, they are blessed. We've heard that word before in Luke in the Sermon on the Plain. The word is is a beatitude. The Latin word is beatitude for blessed. It means a condition or statement of blessedness. It refers to an inner sense of happiness at good fortune. Biblically, it's the idea of joy at experiencing fortune from God's hand. We see that throughout the Psalms. One author defines it this way. I've shared this before. It's a statement declaring that someone is on the true way of being that will result in happiness and human flourishing. Ready servants are blessed. Yes, because they're ready and because the master will serve them. Look at the second half of verse 37. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself, the master will dress himself for service and have them, the servants, recline at table and he will come and serve them. That's amazing. The master, who in this part of the parable is Jesus, will serve the servants, his followers. We see this. A few months later when Jesus girds his loins and washes their feet. We see even more in his death on the cross. And it seems to be saying, if we're taking the parable literally, that that at the wedding supper of the Lamb, at the feast in the house of Zion, he will be serving us. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, will be serving us. A lot of commentators wanted to make sure we knew he's probably not going to be serving us for all of eternity. 
The tables will turn back and we will continue to serve the Lord. But it seems like maybe for that first wedding feast, we are seated and he is serving. If that doesn't stir worship, I don't know what will. King Jesus serving us. And then he says in verse 70, uh, 38, sorry, if he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Jews split the night watch into four different times, four different watches. And all he's saying there is basically if he comes way late into the night, the second or third watch, even if it's in the middle of the night, they'll be blessed if the master finds them awake. And then Jesus adds another picture to his illustrations. It's related. The point is the same, but this one is a thief trying to break into a house. Verse 39 But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. The master here is is us, not Jesus. It's the, the servant. And then he gives the application in verse 40. You also must be ready. So it's the same point as the previous parable. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The point is that for followers of Jesus, we we need to live ready for Jesus' return, to live in expectant watchfulness. We know that Jesus is coming back. That quote I read at the beginning, he, he says it, one in 25 verses says that Jesus is coming back. And we know he's not coming back at an hour that anyone expects. And in fact, we can know that a few of the times we know Jesus isn't coming back is when the doomsday predictors say, I figured out the date. I actually remember a year after college, there was this guy, Harold Camping. Some of you might remember this guy, May 21st, 2011. He said, I did all this prophetic mathematical equations, figured it all out. Jesus is coming back May 11th, 2011. And most Orthodox Christians said, we we actually know that the one time that Jesus probably isn't coming back is the time that you predicted, brother. We, sh- we must always be ready for his return. And then, and then Peter, Peter pipes up. We love Peter. He asks the questions that everyone's thinking. Verse uh, 41, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? Who, who are these parables for? There's debate about Peter's question. Does he mean for us, the 12 apostles, or for all, meaning all the other disciples, the 72 or the 500 others that follow Jesus as Lord? Or does he mean... Is this only for followers, any disciple of Jesus, or for all, like anyone else? Is it unbelievers? Is it for everyone? And Jesus doesn't give an explicit answer, but I believe, based on his following words, what we're going to see, context is king. He he uses words like unfaithful, and he uses ideas like servants who don't know God's will. Jesus is saying that these parables apply to everyone. Yeah, they're for the, the, the 12 apostles and for all the disciples, but they're for everyone. In some way, shape, or form, everyone's going to have some connection with Jesus, even if it's just unbelief. Even if it's just like, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to be your servant. So in the next parable, Jesus gives this picture of a wise and a faithful servant who manages his master's other servants well. In other words, the manager is is a faithful steward. And he also discusses two other servants who are not obedient. They're not faithful Stewards. So verses 42 through 44 say this, And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. 
Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. For the servants who are good stewards of their master's possessions, they are blessed. Again, another beatitude. And they will receive an even greater stewardship from the master. But there's a deep warning. There is a deep warning for servants who show not to be faithful stewards. Verses 45 and 46. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. So the servant proves not to have treasure in heaven and not to have the view of being a steward of the master's possessions. He proves to be an usurper. If you don't know what that word means, it's a person who takes a position of power or importance illegally or by force. He acts as God to the other servants and lives for his own pleasure. And the master will return at an hour that that servant doesn't expect, and it said, cut him to pieces and put him with the unfaithful. That is a terrifying verse. And I believe it refers to judgment on an unbeliever or even maybe a false teacher. Maybe, maybe Jesus has in mind the Pharisees here. It's someone who has heard the gospel, who has heard what God offers and requires, but who denies God or who teaches false doctrines about God, therefore mistreating the servants of God and lives as their own God. And that servant, verse 47 says, that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. Cut in pieces, put with the unfaithful, receive a severe beating. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But there's another servant who will also receive a beating, but it apparently won't be as bad. Look at the first half of verse 48. But to the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. The question here is, is this, te- is this teaching that there are varied punishments in hell? And I was actually surprised that a lot of the scholars and theologians and commentators that I read just like dogmatically were like, yeah, this teaches there are going to be various punishments in hell. That was kind of new to me. It wasn't, it, I didn't freak out. I'm going to be honest with you guys. I don't know where I land, but this, and there were cross-references that said there are other passages that think there are going to be worse punishments in hell. Many think so, but there was one other commentary I read that said we can't push the parable too far there. Here's what I think the point is, if, if you let me zoom out enough. The point is that both servants who are unfaithful through intent or ignorance still receive punishment. There's still a beating, you guys. And you don't, we don't want a beating from the triune God, whether it's severe or light. We want to be faithful and ready servants. And then we see the principle at the second half of verse 48. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand all the more. Peter and the twelve had received much from God. They had been called to be intimate followers and apostles of Jesus Christ. 
and they needed to steward the keys of the kingdom well. And we could understand that uh, there is a specific application to church leaders, to, to me as one of your pastors and to our other pastors. We've been placed as, as stewards over God's people. We're going to give an account uh, about what, how we treated you guys and what we taught you guys. And, and especially for those of us who are vocational, like me, that just means full-time. Me, Stephen, and Dan are vocational. God has given us the amazing blessing and honor of doing this job full-time. And, and the average sermon takes me 20 hours of study to study and to write. And, and that's, that means the Lord has given me much. I know I should be expected. Your past, you should expect your pastors to know the word of God really, really well. James actually says in James 3.1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So... I hope to be a good steward. I know our other pastors hope to be good stewards, but it's not just for us. It's, it's even for you guys out there who follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You have been given much as well. You probably have multiple Bibles at home. You have study Bibles. You have access to amazing resources on the internet, and, and you too need to be faithful with what you've been given by God. We've been given an amazing stewardship. We, we know a lot of God's will, so much will be required of us. And, and I would argue the, the idea here is primarily with how we steward the spiritual realities of the gospel and the things of the kingdom of God, which impacts every other area of our lives. But the reality is outwardly, we can seem to be stewarding our jobs well, our marriages well, our parenting well, but we can be asleep spiritually. We can be the, the sleeping, unready servant who still seems like they're a good steward. To be the ready servant, we remember that through the gospel, our treasure is in heaven, and God isn't just first in our lives like we say a lot, but he's also the sinner. I think we need to add that to our language. He's not just first, he's the center of everything. So our spiritual stewardship from him impacts every area of our lives. If God is the center of my life and living for him and his glory is what my life is is all about, then that impacts the way I do my job, the way I parent, the way I, I neighbor, the way I'm out in the community doing anything else. It impacts everything. So as God's word is a mirror, I, I encourage you all to examine yourselves this morning. Are you the ready, expectant, watchful, faithful, wise servant? Do you remember that your treasure is in heaven and not here? Or are you the unfaithful one through intentional or ignorant disobedience? And just so you know, after hearing this sermon and any sermon, you, you can't claim as much ignorance as you did before this sermon. I am speaking to you the things of the kingdom of God, and God will hold you accountable for what you hear this morning. So that's the call to be ready servants. From here on out, they obviously get much shorter. We'll look at divided servants next, that next paragraph, verses 49 through 53. Although Jesus came to reconcile sinners to God, in doing so, he divides people. He divides those who are his people and those who aren't his people. He says in verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. 
This is a reference to the fire of the final judgment. Jesus is speaking into his coming to earth as a whole and specifically to his second coming. It will be judgment day on that day and the, the final and ultimate separation of the sheep and the goats will happen on that day, on his return. But before that day, verse 50, the cross, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus here is speaking of his suffering death on the cross. Baptism brings to mind submersion underwater. And Jesus would be submerged under the wrath of God in the place of his people. He did go to the cross. He did die. He did bear the wrath of God. And what, is, what did he say as one of his final statements as he hung on the cross? It is finished. It is accomplished. Friends, I feel so passionately about this. I have to be careful because I know I can speak sharp words when I feel so passionate. But I think the gospel is that Jesus Christ accomplished your salvation, brothers and sisters. He accomplished it. He didn't make anything available. He wasn't hanging there saying, man, I hope this works. I hope they repent and believe. He hung there and said, it is finished. I have paid for your sins. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and I am going to draw you to myself. My sheep will hear my voice, and they will come, and nothing will snatch them out of my hand. When he died on the cross, your salvation was completely, infallibly, eternally accomplished. Please believe that, because the word of God teaches that. So even if you're struggling right now, even if you're wondering, well, I seem like I've been asleep. If you are, God will wake you back up. You will bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You will prove to be a sheep because he accomplished your salvation. He died and he rose and he calls his servants to follow him. And his servants will. And what a person believes about Jesus is what divides. It divides mankind even down into families, unfortunately. He says in verses 51 through 53, Do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They'll be divided father against son and, and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This reminds us the cost of following Jesus, as we've talked about previously in Luke. It will cost us much to follow Jesus. Following him will impact our relationships, even with our own families. I wonder how many of you have experienced that. Someone I love very much has experienced that in a significant way. We hear often that Muslims who convert to Christianity, this is pretty much the guaranteed experience for them. Mom and dad disown them, kids disown them, communities disown them. There's a cost to follow Jesus, but there's a greater cost not to follow him, isn't there? It's important to know for us as Christians that, that this division, though, it doesn't give us permission to be intentionally divisive. We've been called to love our enemies, and that includes our own family members who don't follow Jesus. If they count us an enemy, we should still love them. We should do our best to selflessly and sacrificially love those in our family 
that aren't servants of Jesus. We don't have to affirm them. We shouldn't affirm them. If they are living in sin, brothers and sisters, the right thing for you to do is to not affirm them in their sin. Don't let their definition of love be your definition of love, which is maybe unconditional affirmation. You have the biblical definition of love, which is to do the right thing for you, to tell you, I don't affirm your sin or your lifestyle, but I love you. And I want you to repent of your sin and come to Jesus Christ. We are ambassadors to God's enemies, imploring even our loved ones on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I love you. God loves you. Come to God. But Jesus, he does divide those who have recognized him as Lord and those who haven't. And in the next paragraph, he's really surprised that a majority of the Jewish crowds haven't been the ones who have recognized who he is. This is the unwise servants in verses 54 through 56. Jesus tells them that they're good at interpreting the weather, but not the present time. He says, you see a cloud rising in the west, and you say, it's going to rain, the shower's coming, and so it happens. You see a south wind blowing, and you say, there's going to be scorching heat, and so it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. Why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Jesus is the Messiah, the king of God's kingdom. He's been doing all of these miracles, and they refuse to see him. What about you in here who aren't a Christian? If you're visiting with us this morning or you come to this church but you're not a Christian, you, you may be, and I'll say you probably are, an astute engineer, teacher, construction worker, whatever you do. But respectfully, are you a horrible theologian? H have you looked into Christianity in the same way that you have pursued your other studies? If there was one in a million chance that there is a God and salvation is offered through his son, Jesus Christ, wouldn't that be worth looking into just even just a little bit, maybe a few hours, maybe a Bible study with a Christian to really see if this is legit. One commentator says it like this. Many who disbelieve say that they would believe if the evidence were clearer, if they could truly tell that Jesus is the Messiah, but Jesus says something quite different. It is clear that the kingdom has come in Jesus. There is plenty of evidence in order to discern who he is. We have this book, a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. It reports supernatural events that took place to fulfill the most specific prophecies, and this book claims to be divine rather than human in origin. We have overwhelming manuscript evidence of this book. It has remained unchanged since the day that it was written. It's been written over 2,000 years 40 different authors, three different continents, three languages, one story, all about Jesus Christ. There is no other book like this because it is from God. Every other religious book is written by one guy in his own lifetime. Not only that, we have 2,000 years of millions, and I would say even billions of people 
claiming that Jesus is the God, man, Messiah, the Lord. He's changed our lives. And these people have smart brains and have concluded that the Bible is true. And therefore, Jesus is who he said he is. Again, if you're not a Christian with us this morning, please look into this. I love you, and I don't know you. I genuinely love you. This church loves you. We believe there's a God. We believe salvation is offered through Jesus Christ, and it's the only way to heaven. Talk to me. I'll introduce you to a pastor or a community group leader. We will get coffee with you. If you seek truth, you will find it, and truth is Jesus Christ and God and his word. Christians in here. Praise God that you aren't the unwise servant. That God gave you spiritual eyes to see God as holy and yourself as sinful and Jesus as Savior. Remember, he accomplished your salvation and therefore he gave you the spiritual eyes to repent and to believe in Jesus. You haven't missed him. You can be a good archaeologist and a good theologian. Not archaeologist, meteorologist, right? Weather person. You can discern the weather well and Jesus well. Praise God for your salvation. You, as the next paragraph says, you are settled servants. You're reconciled servants. Look at verses 57 through 59. Here is another parable from Jesus. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser to the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge And the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Now, I I shouldn't be, but I was a little embarrassed because I actually just realized this week that this is a parable. Like, for the last 10 years of following Jesus, I've read this. I've read the account in Matthew, and I've always thought he took a weird, hard left turn. And all of a sudden, he's literally just talking about our horizontal relationships. This is a parable. He's still talking about the end time and the coming judgment. Maybe a secondary point is our horizontal relationships, but it's not the primary point. He's saying, Jesus is saying in this short little parable, in the same way that a guilty offender may try to enter into a plea bargain, we have that word in this day and age, a plea bargain is is where the defendant agrees to plead guilty to some or all charges in exchange for concessions from the prosecutor, such as a lesser sentence or reduced charges. So in the same way we enter plea bargains, a person should settle with God before they meet God face to face, for then it will be too late. If a person waits until judgment day to try to settle up with God, the only settling up that will be done is eternal punishment and separation from God. They won't get out until they've paid the last penny, and because God is infinitely holy, even the tiniest sin is worthy of infinite punishment. We'll be in debtor's prison forever. The guilty sinner would pay the last penny, but you don't have to. They don't have to. The plea bargain in God's economy is incredible. You are guilty. I am guilty. But we can rejoice that Jesus paid the penalty for us. We were able to settle up before we got there on judgment day, and we were thrown into prison for eternity. Christ bore the wrath of God, and we are settled servants. We're reconciled to the judge. Not only is he just this far judge, but we can call him Abba, Father. 
there would have been no other way for us to be forgiven. This is the only way. God's perfect son paying the penalty for us. There is no other hope outside of Jesus Christ. So uh, finally, just again, if you're with us this morning and you're not a Christian, I, I just really ask you to consider Jesus Christ, to, to realize that there is evidence that God is real, that he loves you, that he's holy, and that you're sinful, and Jesus Christ is the Savior. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus before it's too late. Seriously, we don't know that he's not coming back this afternoon. We don't know that. What if he does? Don't wait until it's too late. Believers, because of Jesus' work on the cross and because of his imminent coming, we can be, we will be ready servants who live faithfully and wisely. Stay awake. Keep your lamp burning. Live in a way that to the best of your ability and by the power of the Holy Spirit honors God and stewards the spiritual blessings that he has bestowed upon you. And let that impact every area of your life. You are and you will be blessed if you live in such a way. And you will live that way because God's spirit works it up in you. Jesus is coming back. And he is going to take us home. You can stand on that promise. And it may feel like he's delaying. But remember, Peter says in 2 Peter 3.8, but do not look, overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a, and a thousand years is as one day. So in God's perspective, it's only been two days since Jesus left. Take heart, dear saints. He's coming soon. He will bring us home. If he lived for us and died for us, then the Spirit will work in us a treasuring of him. And this ability to be the awake, faithful, wise servant who lives for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we love you. We declare that you are king and master and Lord and by your spirit in us and through the work of our savior, Jesus Christ, your son, we can be the ready servants. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help us be good stewards of the the realities that you've given us in Christ, the spiritual blessings May that impact every way that we serve and in every way that we are your stewards. We acknowledge that nothing we have belongs to us, but it all belongs to you. And we pray we would use every breath for your glory. And we thank you that when we don't, we have forgiveness in Christ. May you be glorified in everything that we do say, think, and feel. In the name of Jesus, amen.